I want to encourage you to uh, turn in your Bibles to the Song of Songs and verse, uh, today we're going to be looking at chapter 3 and then verses 6 through 11, so basically 6 through the end of the chapter. Microphone, got it. So is there a, a worship folder up here? There is not. As you, uh, as you well know, throughout the, uh, the poem, this great love poem that speaks both of uh, the idealized relationship between uh, two believers, but also which speaks of the relationship between uh, the Shulamite and Solomon, and the uh, more important reference, of course, between God and believers, uh, we've seen how there's been a development in their romance. Uh, Solomon, last week we saw calling her to come with him, and her in essence saying, well actually it was the week before, uh, in essence saying, it is not yet time, and then facing this, this nightmare, this reoccurring nightmare on the bed of searching for him, fearing that she has lost him, and so finally she brings him home to her mother's house, and now the day has come when their marriage is going to take place. It's the wedding day. They are going to be celebrating. So the wedding and the procession and all of those things associated with it are going to go from 3-6 all the way to 5-1 in the uh, Song of Solomon. So we're about to see the beginning of this, this wedding procession, and then next week we'll be seeing the praise of Solomon for his, his bride. But before we turn to the word of the Lord, let us turn to, uh, or rather, before we turn to the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of the word, and let's ask for his help. Oh, sovereign Lord, I pray that you would be with us here today. You know me, Lord. I am a man with feet of clay, a sinner, not worthy to open up and exposit your word to your people. I pray, therefore, that I might be the messenger, that I might be the postman delivering the message of the king to the people who need to hear it. This word, which is part of your word, is meant for our edification. It's meant to build us up, to teach us what to believe and how to live. And there are things that are dreadfully important that we'll learn about relationships here, and most especially the relationship between you and your people as we see it taking place in the church. I pray now, Lord, that you would help me to uh, uncover these things and explain them. There are difficult passages here. I pray, Lord, that I would choose the right course and that, Lord, you would not let me say anything that goes against your word. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Reading Song of Songs, chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants' fragrant powders? Behold, it is Solomon's couch with sixty valiant men around it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and seek, and rather, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart, the beloved. Um, 
Here we see the wedding procession uh, coming up as Solomon brings his beloved up to the city. Whenever you went up to Jerusalem, you went up to Jerusalem because literally it was the, the high place, the high point. And the question that comes up first is asked by the daughters of Jerusalem, who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense uh, with all the merchants' fragrant powders? Who is this? They can already smell the procession approaching and see the, uh, the cloud uh, around it. Uh, and so the question immediately uh, presents itself, what is the answer to that question? Who is this? The daughters recognize as it gets closer that this is Solomon's couch. Uh, actually, the Hebrew, the first word that's used there that's translated as couch is mitah in the Hebrew, which is a bed or a couch. It was, uh, above all, something that you reclined on. Um, either You remember how in the ancient world they didn't actually sit in chairs at tables like we do today. Generally speaking, they reclined to eat. Uh, uh, that was true in both the East and in places like ancient Rome and in Greece and so on. So this is like a, uh, a couch that is carried about rather than understanding it as a, as a chair. And then in verse 9, we hear it described again as an apigron, uh, which is a noun, unfortunately, that only occurs uh, in this verse in Scripture. It's usually the case that you, can, uh, that you can get some helps in understanding what something means because Scripture interprets Scripture, but if it only occurs one place in the entire Bible, it's very difficult to find another reference. So the translators conclude that it is what they call a palanquin, uh, which is, and here I'm giving the dictionary definition, a conveyance formerly used, especially in Eastern Asia, usually for one person that consists of an enclosed litter borne on the shoulders of men by means of poles. So you, uh, you probably have some sort of idea of you know, the, the servants carrying the uh, litter with uh, the, the, the platform behind them four or more uh, carrying these things. It would probably be, because it was very heavy, you'd probably have at least two or three men carrying this litter. And it shouldn't be understood as somebody seated in a box uh, like in the West, but rather lying on a couch inside an enclosed area. The idea appears to be that uh, this, this couch enclosed by a box carried on poles would then in turn be surrounded by a strong bodyguard. Uh, the large number of people involved in this procession could have been the cause of the dust cloud that they saw coming up towards Jerusalem like pillars of smoke. But that could also have been caused by burning incense, probably was, as a matter of fact, um, which would have been very appropriate in the ancient world for a marriage procession. One thing that you notice as you go to the east, um, I, I remember it in Singapore, for instance, very vividly is the profusion of smells that occur in the eastern world you get spices cooking perfumes uh, body odor and everything everywhere you go is so incredibly smell filled and people like to have it that way it's it's almost like um, I, I think about it to myself as a profusion of nasal colors uh, the east is very much color but unfortunately, here in the West, we're more black and white. We don't like smells. We're offended by them. You know, uh, somebody starts vaping within 100 feet of you, and you're instantly offended and insist that they take it, you know, five to 600 feet away from you or outside the world itself. We, we don't like to smell smells as a general rule, not like in the East. But we need to remember at this point in time, smells were very much part of their lives. Uh, the worship of the Lord... Uh, it was filled 
at the temple with all these, these smells. Everything important that they had was uh, filled with smells. The temple would have had the smells, for instance, of incense ascending to heaven. You would have the smell of the burnt offering. You would have had the smell of the, the, the blood and the animals and the offal and so on. Uh, you would not have forgotten that experience. One of the things that I, I find, and I, I believe scientists agree on this point, is that smell is the, uh, the main receptor for memory. You smell something and it brings back those memories. So there is uh, something in the idea of incense being a reminder of the presence of the Lord, the reminder of prayers. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we see the incense ascending on high, which is the prayers of the saints and the Lord being reminded of the plight and the needs of his people. Uh, Smells are not to be forgotten. uh, We have, um, we're built to associate things with that. And it makes me very sad that we're an odor-neutral kind of people uh, in this day and age. I'm not saying we should start burning incense in worship or anything like that. Please don't report me to the presbytery, I know. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it, it, they're not a bad thing. So, unless it is a bad smell, obviously. But who is, who is in the palanquin, is, uh, or the palanquin is more important. Um, commentators, I... I it's, it's amazing how you could get guys, or men, I'm sorry, commentators from the same kind of schools coming to such divergent opinions on every little detail. And this is one of the details that they just cannot agree upon. Obviously, it's not the bed that is empty and being carried up uh, to Jerusalem. There's got to be somebody in it. But is it Solomon or is it the Shunammite uh, or the Shulamite? I, I tend to, to think for theological reasons that Solomon has sent his palanquin uh, and guard to bring uh, the Shulamite from her home up to the wedding place. They're bringing her out of the wilderness up to Zion, up to the city of their God for there for their to be the wedding in Jerusalem. And he is going to address her in chapter 4 with these words of love, words of appreciation as he meets with her. Uh, incidentally, uh, the idea that they are armed for war because of, quote, fear in the night this is where modern commentators sometimes go off the rails as well. Uh, they, they sometimes explain it by saying there was a fear amongst the ancient people that demons would kill the beloved at night before the marriage could be consummated, and that part of the reason that they burned the incense was to frighten away the demons and so on. They, they, people have written entire essays, if you can believe it or not, on that particular subject. I tend to think, though, that the bodyguard was meant to keep away the danger posed by bandits or raiders. And this is one uh, part of... In, uh, of interpretation that you'll find um, academics sometimes miss the forest for the trees and the reason that they do that is because they try to associate words with words in the same setting in the ancient world so um, a friend recently posted on one of my my posts he said uh, if um, if I had a flat on the Murkison late at night I wouldn't stop to change it I'd ride the rim all the way to the, to the next nearest gas station. And, um, okay, everybody, when you say that, understands what that means, and they understand why, I think, the person might choose to make that, uh, that decision. But let's say 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years from now, somebody finds that post. I don't know why they would. And they're trying to interpret it. And they try to associate it with rim, ride the rim. And, you know, they, they go out and they find all of this literature about riding rims and things like that. They might miss the point that the man was making entirely. In the same way, I think that the people would have, uh, who heard this, uh, this poem the first time, this, this uh, divine poetry, 
when uh, it said they were armed because of terrors in the night, they would immediately have nodded their heads and understood why it was that they said it that way. But in the modern world, we're so far removed from that world, that lifestyle, that we don't come to the same conclusions. I, I think it probably was just danger posed by bandits or raiders. The king, the emphasis, though, is that the king will protect his beloved. And here, of course, we have a reminder a potent reminder that God watches over and he protects his beloved church at all times. Beloved congregation, the Lord has his eye on you, you who he has betrothed to himself. He is not going to leave. He is not going to forget. He is not going to leave you undefended. And uh, we have that, that wonderful picture of the way that the Lord watches over his people. And we don't take it as seriously as we should, but there's that notable picture of God's protecting angels that's given to us in Second Kings chapter 6. You remember that the situation there is the, the servant of Elisha has awakened to discover that the Syrian army has surrounded the city that he and Elisha are in. They are surrounded by Syrians, the enemies of Israel. And his response at that point is to panic. They are in the midst of their enemies. And that's where uh, we read, Elisha takes it up, um, starting with verse 15. Then, And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The Lord, believe it or not, has his eye on you and he protects you. He watches over you. When we get to heaven, we will have revealed to us the thousands of ways that the Lord interceded to keep us safe time and again that we haven't even been aware of or acknowledged. I'm sure we will be amazed at his protecting love and his mercy that was shown to us again and again. But here, Solomon then is showing his love uh, by protecting his Beloved, And that's something, of course, I, I don't think we think of enough. We, we are supposed to be, are we not men, the protectors of our loved ones, especially our wives? We should be ready to do anything necessary to intercede and to, uh, to keep them out of danger. But anyway... We have also a description of beauty of this palanquin, but the, uh, the beauty of the conveyance will still pale, obviously, in comparison to the description of the beloved that we read in the next chapter. It's not what brought her up that's most beautiful to Solomon. It is, in fact, the beauty herself. It is his beloved. So the daughters, having recognized uh, what's about to happen, they call upon all the, the women of Jerusalem, come on up, come on up to the wall, see, see what's going to happen. Solomon is about to have his wedding day. All eyes, believe it or not, after they'd seen the palanquin coming up, their eyes then would have shifted to the king, and they see Solomon crowned on the day of his wedding. Now, this is not a coronation day. It's not the crown of state, but rather it is a wedding crown, either a a wreath or a floral bouquet that's upon his head and probably will be on the head of the beloved as well. His is given to him by his mother. And interestingly enough to me, 
at least later, Solomon will write in the Proverbs, didn't he? In Proverbs 12, uh, 4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. It's like a foreshadowing of that. The, the crown, a sign of the wedding that's about to take place. Hopefully the Shulamite will be an excellent wife and truly the crown of her husband that's only represented in the wedding crown. Now, what do we learn from all of this, looking at this procession as it's proceeding and so on, and indeed all the chapters that we've been reading up until this point? Well, I, I want to put before you that there is a biblical four-step pattern to love, to human relationships that we are supposed to be following. We have seen the process of falling in love. Then we have seen the systematic process of courtship. Then we have seen the marriage about to begin. And then that marriage, immediately after that, we will see sexual intimacy. We'll see the marriage consummated, getting to that point. And we come here to the point where the marriage is beginning. Now, the world, as you know, and I, I don't really need to go into much detail about this, but they have it utterly mixed up. They've destroyed this four-step process, and in turn, it is destroying our society. At first, it was marriage that was deemed as unnecessary for physical intimacy to take place. The world began that, that transition at the midpoint in the 20th century. So I, I remember when I was going to college, and this was in the 1980s, the question was how much pursuit or courtship was required, how much was necessary for physical intimacy to take place. Now, I don't know what it currently is at this point in time in colleges, but the general consensus I remember being discussed by the women in Scotland was that you weren't supposed to sleep together until at least the fourth or fifth date, which, you know, is kind of crazy, but that was where they were. But now even that process is considered too difficult. Fourth or fifth date, are you kidding me? I'm supposed to wait that long? Uh, particularly in big cities, therefore, physical intimacy has become like the process of ordering a meal online. Uh, a few swipes on, on your phone and you expect it to happen. It's literally supposed to be the first thing that happens in their minds. And then the other stuff maybe will follow afterwards. You don't even have to go out to eat first in our uh, present-day society. And then there's this crazy mix-up uh, where people assume that eventually one of these encounters might result in falling in love and perhaps after a long period of testing marriage. It, it's even getting to the point where we expect to have children before we expect to get married. This is utterly disordered, obviously, completely messed up. You can't dispense with these steps in the right order and expect for things to go well. The God who made us showed us the steps that need to occur for intimacy to be a profitable thing, for it to, to go well. Believe it or not, the marriage ceremony, as we see, itself is very important. And why is it so important? Because it's a public act, isn't it, of covenanting. You come together in public before many witnesses. That's why we have witnesses at a wedding to hear what you say, to hear what you are telling the world. And you stand there and you declare before the whole world, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. You tell everybody that. We have covenanted together. We have pledged our troth. Troth, incidentally, is a, is a wonderful old school world, a word rather for fidelity. We have pledged our fidelity to one another. Forsaking all others, we will be devoted to one another from here on. From now till death parts us, I am off limits to the rest of the world. 
It's one of the reasons why when um, I'm discussing uh, how a marriage should take place with couples who want to get married, one of the things that I say is this is your day. This is a day whereby you know, you are, you're having uh, a celebration, but the one thing that you cannot mess with is the covenanting at the heart of it. That must take place. I don't care if you light the unity candle or do the thing with the pouring the sand in of various colors. And, and I, I've seen some, some huge sillinesses. Uh, I'm going to draw the line at the dumb you know, wedding dance coming in that, that I'm not going to be part of or uh, utterly pagan rituals and so on. But if they want to do special music or stuff like that, I, I have no, no problem with that. But the, the essence of the covenant vows at the heart of the wedding ceremony, they must remain. It must be absolutely clear that you have entered into a binding and lifelong contract, a covenant that is to take you through the rest of your married life. Now, a lot of people in the modern world, at this point, they shake their heads, they roll their eyes, and they say, why is this, this covenanting, this taking of vows so important? Can't we just move in together and act like we're married? Isn't that enough? Well, consider other important roles, for instance. Would you be happy with a governor who said, well, let's skip the inauguration, the oath of office. I'll just do the stuff. You know, let's just get straight to it. Or a policeman who said, you know, I, I don't think this training and raising hands and taking oaths and all that is necessary. Just, I, I've seen it on TV. I watch all these cop shows. Just give me the gun and the badge. I'll do the stuff. I'll just go out. Or, uh, you know, how about a pastor who says, I, I just want to get started preaching. I'm just going to go ahead and do that. I don't feel that seminary or training or confessional fidelity or ordination vows, I don't think they're very important. Now, for that last example with the pastor, I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen a lot, and the results are catastrophic. The guy is utterly unconstrained. He can literally say or do anything that he can get away with in a congregation, and they have no standards over him that he is being held to. It is not the way it's supposed to go. And most of the time, we understand that. We don't want doctors who have not been trained and who have not taken vows. We don't want pilots who haven't done these things. And so the idea that I've seen a marriage on television, I'll wing it. It does not work. I have counseled young men who were devastated or suicidal even when their long-term girlfriends suddenly moved out on them and took up with another man. But I've had to say to them, you made no commitment. You, you took no vows. You, you didn't even begin your relationship with the handshake agreement. Nothing at all. How can you expect fidelity when no pledge of fidelity was made? There was nothing really constraining either of you. You did it wrong. And now you're reaping the terrible results of it. And I'm very sorry, but learn from this. Learn from having gone about it the wrong way the first time. Now, it's only after that, that public covenant bonding has occurred that you have the right setting for sexual intimacy to occur between a man and a woman. And after marriage, that intimacy can, and indeed, it must occur. It's a vital part of the marriage relationship. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 7, 2, stressing the importance of that intimacy. He says, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise, also, the wife to her husband. 
The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Once marriage has taken place, then and only then can you finally really be naked and unashamed with another human being. And you don't need to, as you do, unfortunately, still to this day, in a, in a relationship, a sexual relationship occurring out of wedlock, be constantly looking over your shoulder. Once the marriage has taken place, once you have made that covenant vow, you aren't doing the equivalent of driving without a license anymore. You are actually practicing marriage the way it's supposed to be practiced, enjoying it in the right setting, and it should be to you a great gift. That's what the Lord wants, and he wants it, obviously, to be an image of his love for the beloved. It's an environment that has been created in which trust can occur, and when the vows are broken, when trust is broken, there should be serious consequences, It shouldn't be the case that we can commit adultery and there be no consequences whatsoever. No-fault divorce is nowhere to be found in the Bible. I am absolutely of the opinion that adultery should still be against the law of the land. I really do. It is meant to be in the moral law. And so it is that we should make applications of the things that we've, uh, we've just gotten here from the, to the larger relationship that we have, to the, the meta-relationship, the great relationship that's being pointed forward to between Christ and the church. So let me make some applications there. There needs to be a similar covenanting between believers and Christ when we come to the Lord. And that is why we take, for instance, in this church, becoming a member so very seriously. We stress the importance of the, of the vows that you are taking. One of the things that I like to say to people is don't rank your vows. If you're taking vows before God, they are all at the same level. But unfortunately, people do. I tend to find in this town, it's bizarre, but the highest vow that they, they, they put is their vow to uphold the Constitution, as though that's first. And then further down the line, marriage vows, and then maybe at the very bottom, the vows that they take when they enter into the church, the covenant that they make there. When in fact, a vow to God is a vow to God. And the the vow that we take when we enter into a church where we declare ourselves to be believers in the presence of many witnesses, that is an incredibly important thing. Then our baptism, whether we were baptized as, as children or whether we were baptized as adults, we're supposed to remember our baptism. That marked us out as the Lord's. It is the sign and seal of his promises to us, an outward and visible sign of what should be occurring within us, the cleansing, the washing of regeneration. It is terribly important. It's one of the reasons why we're supposed to, I'm actually directed, when I baptize an infant, I'm supposed to tell the congregation, remember your baptism. Remember what it means. Because it is meant to remind you of the covenant vows that you took in marriage. Now, this is not a sacrament as the Episcopalians pretend that it is. Uh, Marriage is not a sacrament, but the the purpose of the wedding ring was actually, one, to tell the entire world that you're taken, and secondly, to be a reminder to you. As the great and wise uh, prophet Randy Travis said, but on my other hand, there's a wedding band that reminds me of someone who would not understand. And so... We are reminded ourselves 
of the vows that we took, aren't we, by this little object? But it shouldn't be the case that we need to be reminded by the, the wedding band in order to keep those vows. It should be the case that it's our desire to do so. And so, too, when we take our vows to join the church, I shouldn't have to see a, a baptism on a regular basis to remind me of what my own baptism means, what it shows has happened in my life, whose I am now, who I belong to. That should be something that I'm daily reminded of by his presence, the fact that I'm studying his word. It's also why we guard the table, isn't it? It's not until you've made that public profession of faith in front of many witnesses, regardless of whether you were born into the church and received the sacrament of baptism, you cannot come to this table, which points to the wedding supper of the Lamb until you have entered into that covenant yourself personally with the Lord Jesus Christ. Until you have told the world, I am his, he is mine. And there is no breaking that relationship because he is the one who inaugurated it. He is the author and the finisher of my faith. And it's why we take church discipline so seriously because it is the equivalent of, of committing spiritual adultery when you sin against the Lord and his commandments or when you apostatize and walk away from him. It should, be, it should never be the case that you can just walk away from the relationship, the vows that you entered into. And those who have never come to the table on earth, I need to remind you that you have little reason to believe that you will be at the supper above. You need to, to come to the table. You need to make that, that covenant yourself. Now, there are churches out there, admittedly, that no longer practice church membership or church discipline and they are, I have to tell you, as big a mess as the relationships that happen without marriage. They're always going all over the place. The doctrine is inconsistent. They don't know who's a member and who's not. Uh, it's, it's a very slapdash kind of deal. And there is no consistency. And there isn't really being uh, shown to the people the covenant faithfulness of the Lord on a regular basis. That's the kind of thing that we need. We need to be reminded on a regular basis whose we are. It's one of the reasons why we practice the Lord's table once a month. We're reminded of that marriage relationship that we have with the Lamb as we come to the table. And we have a reminder that the day is coming that we will eat and drink with Him, that we will sit and we will celebrate. The wedding supper of the Lamb, that's something that you should be looking forward to with greater and greater anticipation each day. But in the meantime, be reminded of all that the Lord means to you, what he has pledged to do for you, who he is to you, and how important your relationship to him is. And I pray that it is a, it is a relationship that brings you joy. I've said before, if you aren't a happy Christian, you're doing something wrong, in essence. Now, I don't expect you to be crazy happy all the time, but if Christianity makes you miserable, that's not Christianity. Something, something wrong is going on there. So, may it be that we together remember our marriage vows here on earth and that we remember that they point to a marriage that is never broken, to vows that the Lord has made to us and that they encourage us to remember that he who has entered into that, that wedding with us will Keep it eternally. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, Lord, I can't do justice to such a beautiful poem as this. I cannot speak of the eternal truths as I should. 
I feel so inadequate, Lord, to develop the themes that are contained within your word, to point your people to your love for them, which is overwhelming. We see in the declarations of love given by Solomon to the Shulamite, the kind of way that you think of your people, of the love that you have for them, how you you adore them, and how your desire is to make them yours eternally. Help your people to see that, Lord. Overcome my deficiencies and make it that they desire that relationship for eternity, to begin here and to go on forever. And if they have not yet come to you, O Lord, help them to feel that that lack, that absence of, of intimacy in their lives. O Lord, may they desire to come to your table and have that foretaste of the wedding supper that is to come. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy